scripture this morning comes from John chapter 10, verses 1 to 21. This is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon, and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? These are God's word for us. Friends, I don't think you have to look very far to find examples of authority figures harming those entrusted to their care. So think of Nero or, or Stalin or Chavez, or Kim Jong-un. You know, what, what did they do? They, what are they doing? They, they used public influence to, to serve themselves at the expense of their country. Or you think of church leaders who use their office to perpetuate sexual abuse or to embezzle money or spread false teaching. 
I think of parents who, who deride their children, or husbands who berate their wives, or, or employers who, who fleece their workers just to line their own pockets. How should we respond to the failure of human leaders? That's a big question. And do we have a response other than hollering and shaming them until heads roll? Because we sure see a lot of that. Here's what we learn from God's word, okay? First, what do we, how do we respond to the failure of human leaders? We need to remember that authority is fundamentally a good thing. It's a gift from God. And it's given to rulers, and pastors, and parents, and husbands, and teachers, and business owners, and coaches, and other people for God's glory, and you're good. That's where we have to start. A second, we need to lament the ways authority has been grievously corrupted by sin. Authority is not the problem. It's the heart, attitude, and desires of the man or woman who is exercising authority. Third, we cry out to the Lord in the midst of all the mess around us because he alone is able to rescue leaders from themselves. They think things like accountability, checks and balances, all good. But here's the reality, friends. Only Jesus can, get, can give us a new desire and a new ability to use whatever authority he's given to us for God's priorities and purposes. Checks and balances can't do that. Accountability alone can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. If we try to functionally eliminate authority by distributing it with perfect equality, we will fix nothing. You and I could have the exact same amount of social power. And you know what we would keep right on doing with that apart from God? Using it for selfish ends. Fourth, how do we respond to the failure of human leaders? We patiently wait for the day. When Jesus returns and every human authority opposed to him becomes a footstool for his feet. We wait for that day and knowing that, that even now our sovereign Lord is what? He's seated on the throne of the universe reigning over the affairs of wayward men. And finally, as we wait for all things to be made new, human leaders included, we rest in the precious promise of John 10, 1 through 21. 
You know what that promise is? Big picture. Where human leaders fail you, Jesus does not. We rest in that. Where where human leaders fail us, Jesus does not. Your spouse may hurt you. A family member may abuse you. A pastor may fail you. Jesus will not. And I bring all that up, not not just to make us kind of quiet and sober, though it's, it's good to feel that, right? That's a heavy topic. I bring all that up because the context of John chapter 10 is a spectacular failure on the part of the Jewish religious leaders in chapter nine. Because Jesus has, has just finished healing a man born blind. Nobody ever done that before. But, but instead of rejoicing with him and, and believing in Jesus as the son of God, what, what did the religious leaders do? They threw the guy out of the synagogue. They cast him out. Why? Because he wouldn't stop honoring Jesus. And he boldly confronted the Pharisees' unbelief and their refusal to believe in Jesus. So they got rid of him because he was a threat to their authority. And you need to know, friends, that that's not the first time that Israel's leaders injured the very people God had entrusted to their care. In Ezekiel 34, verse 3, the Lord, through the prophet Ezekiel, he indicts idolatrous elders, false prophets and priests for abusing the flock of God. Listen, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd. And in response to that indictment, the Lord does two things. Okay, first, he says, I will personally hold accountable all of those failed leaders. Verse 10, Ezekiel 34, behold, I am against the shepherds. That's frightening if you're a spiritual leader. And second, God promised to do for Israel the very things that her human leaders failed to do. Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost. Listen, it's just on repeat. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. 
He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land. What's what's Yahweh saying? To fallen leaders destroying a broken, sinful people. I am going to do what all of (laughs) y'all have failed to do. I'm going to do that. I've noticed that, that when a spiritual leader in the church falls, in particular, it's really easy for folks to use their hypocrisy as an excuse to either abandon the church or completely disavow the faith. I get that temptation emotionally. Trust me. But here's the problem with that response, friends. If you do that when a human leader, particularly in the church, falls, fails in a public way, if you do that, if you abandon the church, if you disavow the faith, it reveals that your faith wasn't in Jesus to begin with. It was in a fallen man or woman, ready? Just like you. You realize that. Why why does the Bible, think about this, take such great pains to parade before our eyes, and that's not an exaggeration, all the failures of even the best human shepherds in the history of Israel, Moses and David included. I would argue in our image conscious age, that's not smart, right? You don't want that out online. You could be applying for a job one day, Moses, David, and, and HR could research your previous tweets or posts and learn that. We, we, we hide that stuff, right? because it could come back to bite you. Why why does the Lord do the exact opposite and just parade all of those failures? You ever think about that? That, That's not PR savvy. Why does he do that? Quite simply, friends, it's because every one of those failures whispers, he's not the one. He's not the one. You got to wait for the Lord. You have to wait for the Messiah. Because where human leaders fail us, Jesus does not. He has not. He is not. He will not. How do we know that? Two reasons in John 10 at risk of simplifying a gloriously deep passage. First, Jesus is the door that leads to life. Jesus is the door that leads to life. Why, how do we know, remember the big picture, that where human leaders fail us, Jesus does not. We just believe that because the pastor says it because I felt that on a Sunday. Well, that's not going to help you tomorrow. We need reasons. <laughs> reasons. Reason one, because Jesus is the door that leads to life. In the first six verses of this chapter, Jesus tells a parable about sheep and shepherds. 
And that was a really common image in first century Palestine, though less so for us. You know, I, I still remember not that long ago trying to explain to some of my boys that, that food doesn't actually come from Kroger. You know, where's meat come from? Kroger. Well, not quite. But, but in Jesus' day, that wasn't, you didn't have to explain that so much because most Jewish families had a small flock of sheep. And by day, they grazed in the fields surrounding the village under the, the watchful eye of a shepherd. But then at night, to protect them from thieves and robbers and wolves, they, they were kept in a courtyard, either attached to the house or, or in a, a larger, separate enclosure shared by their families in the village. And the larger sort of sheepfolds containing several flocks either had a, a door guarded by a gatekeeper Or if it was just an opening, shepherds were known to sleep in front of it themselves. Which meant if a predator, of course, wanted to get in, they'd have to get past the shepherd first. And so in either case, whether thieves or robbers are trying to steal or kill the sheep, they they didn't get into the fold by walking through the door. They, They tried to climb in, get in, some other way to avoid attention. So we've got to keep that in mind. That's the context. Everybody Jesus is talking to would have known all of that and more. But given that, and given the, the background in Ezekiel 34, we might expect Jesus to first compare himself to the shepherd. It's kind of the low-hanging fruit. Oh, I see where he's going. Well, he doesn't do that at first. He, he begins in verses 7 to 10 by comparing himself to the door. Look at verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. What, what's Jesus saying with that illustration? I am the door. Well, well clearly it's He's drawing an analogy, right? Reminds us to not necessarily take everything literally in the Bible. <laughs> you know, he's, he's not an actual door. <laughs> but what, what's he saying about himself by comparing himself to door? He's saying this, friends. If you want to be numbered among the covenant people of God, if you want to enter his kingdom, enjoy his presence, and live under his rule, then there is one thing you must do. You have to come to Jesus. You have to come to Jesus, trust in Jesus, because because there's no other path to God apart from obedient faith in him. He's the door. And the Lord's promise in verse 9 that all who come to him will be saved reminds us of the deadly serious nature of our situation apart from the door. What's that? That God is holy and we are not, that no one is good enough. None of us deserve God's favor. We desperately need forgiveness. We need a savior. And because Jesus is the door, if you surrender your life to his authority, okay, trusting him to, to make you right with God, then verse 9 isn't just a a spiritual possibility. That's a promise to you, friend. That's a promise. You will certainly be saved from the wrath of God. Okay, so what does that mean? That means you you can cease from your anxious striving. Okay, you can stop, 
right now from, from trying to perform for God or perform for the people around you. You can, you can live to please the Lord, not so you, you, know, you stay on his good side, but because he's already lavished his love on you in Jesus, you will be saved. That's a promise to all who come to the door and go through it. And that, that picture of, of sheep coming in and going out of the door to find pasture, that, that doesn't just pull all kinds of imagery from the Old Testament of the, the blessings of the new covenant. It, it speaks to the spiritual nourishment of relationship with Jesus. That pasture he's talking about. And in other words, Jesus doesn't just give us life on the final day. He gives us abundant life right here, right now. And these days, I, I mentioned this to some of you since I, I think since I got back uh, from a recent family wedding trip to Hawaii, of all places. One of the things that just amazed me about some of the places we hiked on that island is that, that you... It's just overflowing with life in ways I've never seen before. You, you have plants growing out of other plants. You have plants on top of plants. You have, you have trees like growing out of other trees. <laughs> you, you, bamboo. You ever been in bamboo forest at Maimon around here, right? Bamboo over there is like this big around. No joke. And the, the trunks of the monkey pod trees are the size of a car. Everything's green. Everything's growing. It was, you know, flowers everywhere. It was life on steroids. It's incredible. And I thought, that just life upon life, plant upon plant, tr- trees out of trees, like ad nauseum, that's a, that's a picture of this sp- kind of spiritual life Jesus offers you, friend. What, what does Jesus offer? What's he do? He replaces emptiness with gladness and meaninglessness with purpose, and slavery with with freedom, and loneliness with community. He offers a, a joy that suffering cannot steal, a security no enemy can shake, and an identity as his adopted son or daughter that no critic can take away. You're, you're not going to find abundant life in the praise of men. That's a treadmill. You're not going to find abundant life in financial prosperity. That's a source of anxiety, no matter how much cash you have. You're not going to find abundant life in, in sexual pleasure. Okay, we're, we're making a difference. We're hours of video games. Okay, th- those, hear this, those gods are never satisfied. You, you give yourself to those things. You, you live for those things. Devote yourself to those things and they'll eventually destroy you. You can only find abundant life in Jesus. Look at verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it marginally and be dour and sad and Walk in the fear of the Lord. (laughs) No. Christian, if you know Jesus Christ, you should be among the most joyful people on planet Earth. 
Do we live in a world of pain? Yes. Should we lament the sorrows I mentioned earlier? Yes. Are we always sorrowful? Yes. But because of Jesus and the life he gives us, what are we also? Always rejoicing. So hear me, okay? Especially if you've grown up in the church. Quinn was talking to young people earlier. Let's go after that again. Jesus isn't just right or true. He's exceedingly good. Think about that. Grew up in the church. What do, you, what, what do you feel? What do you hear? Jesus is true. Jesus is right. Okay, I get it, mom and dad. Well, he is. They're right. But you know what else he is? Because he's right and true, he's also exceedingly good and satisfying and a treasure. You know, knowing him, loving him, serving him, that's the path of life, friend. He's, he's the best treasure you could find. And think about this. Whenever we sin, even as Christians, inevitably, it's because in some particular way, we have stopped believing that abundant life is found in Jesus. We don't just sin. We don't just do things, wrong things. We do, even as Christians. But we do that because, in some way, we've forgotten that abundant life is only found in Jesus. Thieves and robbers, in contrast, again, verse 10, don't lead the sheep to life. They come only to steal and kill and destroy. So, so who are they in this passage? Let's think about that. Who, who are they? Well, in the immediate context, they're the Jewish religious leaders. Okay, the Pharisees who just threw the guy out of the synagogue, opposing Jesus and his followers. Just like the corrupt rulers and false prophets in Ezekiel. They, they are, look at verse 8, all the messianic pretenders who came before Jesus and, and led the people astray through false teaching. And, hear this, they are any man or woman today who occupies a position of spiritual authority in the church, but does not have a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Think about this. The way you enter the sheepfold determines the true nature of your relationship both to God and to his people. So the Pharisees were convinced they were good with God. They, they prided themselves, right, on being shepherds of God's people. But the refusal to believe in Jesus, to what to enter through the door, didn't just give the lie to their own relationship with God. What else did that do? It exposed them as a deadly threat to the sheep. And so if you're in a position of spiritual leadership or spiritual authority. Okay, in this, in this church, in your family, in our community, I want you to listen to me very, very carefully. Friend, you need to pay exceedingly close attention to the condition of your own relationship with Jesus. You have to do that. That's your first priority. It's not what everybody else may be wanting from you. 
It's not what can be measured or scheduled on a calendar of appointments, but it is your first and highest priority. Because if you stop following him, if you stop treasuring Jesus, if if he stops being the joy of your heart, then, then you might remain in the fold in the eyes of everyone around you. But you're no longer a shepherd. You're a thief and a robber because the, the spiritual example and influence of your life invariably in ways you realize and ways you don't will start to lead the people of God away from God. That's sobering. And if you continue in that kind of willful hypocrisy, I promise you this, sheep will be destroyed. Sheep will be scattered. You'll cease to be a source of spiritual life. You'll actually become a source of spiritual death. So, so tend well, this is the application, to the condition of your own soul. Tend well to that. Okay, because the difference between shepherds and thieves isn't whether they are in the fold, it's whether they keep on entering it through the door, through Jesus. Watch, watch your life closely. But having said that, and that has to be said, we have to hear that warning, especially as spiritual leaders in the church. We also need to remember the best spiritual leaders in the church are not perfect, right? We forget that. which is honestly why we're susceptible to disillusionment when they inevitably stumble and fall, you know? It's the thing I mentioned earlier. Is, is our faith really in, in Jesus or in men? The best spiritual leaders aren't perfect. And when they stumble, that, that doesn't, please hear this, that doesn't automatically make them a thief or a robber. <laughs> okay? Why not? Because the question really comes down to this. In our, in our failures and in our successes as spiritual leaders, in so many different contexts and roles, are we clinging to Jesus, the door, or are we not? That, that's ultimately what makes the difference. Many will, some will not. And when that happens, when they don't, and when parents, pastors, rulers, employers, and others hurt you accordingly, friend. You need to remember this, okay? Where human leaders fail you, Jesus does not. He doesn't. Why not? First reason, because he's the door that leads to life. Here's the second. We're going to linger on this. Jesus is the shepherd who lays down his life. So he's both the door that leads to life and he's the shepherd who lays down his life. Let's think about this. He's, he's compared himself to the door in verses 7 to 10. And then he switches metaphors in verses 11 to 18 and compares himself to the shepherd. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And we got to go hit rewind for a second. Just go back to Ezekiel. 
Okay, because that background is just all over the place in this passage. In Ezekiel 34, there, there's a tension that isn't really resolved until Jesus arrives. Okay, what's the tension? How can Yahweh, maybe you caught this earlier, we read that passage, how can he both be our shepherd personally and at the same time, without contradicting that, set up a man in the line of David to be our shepherd? I don't know if Ezekiel himself fully knew how that would work, right? Wait, are you going to be it? Or are you going to set up one? Are you going to do it? Or are you going to give one? <laughs> Wait, what's the answer? Thank you, Josh. Yes, right? <laughs> yes. Why? Because if the shepherd appointed by God the Father is God the Son, born as a man to do for us what no human Savior ever could, then the answer to both those promises is yes. So what makes Jesus such a good shepherd? Let's think about this. I think there's at least five answers in the rest of this passage, okay? First, look at verse 12. Jesus cares for us. What makes him a good shepherd? He cares for us as the people of God. And in verse 12, he points out a difference between the way a hired hand, somebody who's just kind of paid to take care of the sheep, you know, a day labor of sorts, the way they would respond and the way a shepherd would respond when they both see a wolf coming at the sheep. You just imagine that scenario, right? So unlike the shepherd, the hired hand, verse 12, does not own the sheep. So what's his priority number one? Saving his own skin, right? Gonna cover my own butt, all right? So what does he do? He leaves the sheep and flees. He flees, look at verse 13, because he is a hired hand and and really cares nothing for the sheep. What's he in it for? In it for the money. But in contrast, so much of what Jesus teaches us is through contrast with things we know in our world. In contrast, Jesus is what? The shepherd who cares deeply for the sheep. You know what that means, Christian? It means Jesus is not emotionally neutral toward you. Think about that. He he cares for you because you're his. In both verse 12 and in verse 4, Jesus describes the sheep as his own, his sheep. Okay, you're not a rental car, in other words. All right, you're you're a prized possession. His care for you isn't isn't some kind of duty imposed from without. He's not in it for the money. It's it's the overflow of his heart. It's, It's his privilege as the shepherd to shepherd you because he cares for you. You know, I was thinking if, if I'm at the beach and my boys are playing out in the waves and, you know, a lifeguard comes by on one of those annoying kind of ATV things and throwing up sand and, eh, sir, there's a riptide out there. Uh, somebody's got to take care of those. Could somebody help those kids? You know, and he just keeps going down the beach warning people. Am I going to think, oh, great. I got to go out and help those kids. Gosh. Pistachios and beer taste so good. You know, no, I mean they do. But what am I gonna? What am I gonna feel? I'm gonna. Those are my kids. What's any parent, good parent, gonna gonna feel in that moment? I don't care what happens to me. I'm 
going after those boys. They're yours. They're not a rental. That's what Jesus feels toward us, friends. And, and when spiritual dangers and temptations just assail you from every side, know this, Jesus isn't going anywhere in that moment. You know, some, some of our most bitter experiences of human betrayal, I, I think that I've experienced, often come in an hour of trial when, when life's getting really hard and suddenly someone that we thought would prove faithful proves unfaithful. You know what I mean? Know this, because as a shepherd, Jesus cares for us. Even if your spouse leaves you, Jesus isn't going anywhere. You're his Christian. You'll always be his. He's going to protect you. He's going to defend you. He'll uphold you with his mighty right hand. The shepherd is a good shepherd because he cares for us. Second, look at verse 14. Jesus knows us cares for us. He knows us. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. What's he saying? Well, in the same way that the father, God the father, is intimately familiar with God the son, so too the son is intimately familiar with you. That's crazy. (laughs) He knows every detail of your body, your personality, your spiritual strengths and weaknesses, your life experiences, your joys, your sorrows, your fears, your longings. Nothing about you, Christian, is hidden from your shepherd. He knows all of you. And in one sense, that's true for every man or woman who has ever lived. But listen, it is particularly true, especially true, of Jesus' chosen people. Of those who are the object of his saving foreknowledge and mercy from eternity past. And and though we are saved as part of the chosen people of God in a corporate sense, we, we occupy here this far more than just a category in Jesus' mind. You know, Jesus is not like a politician on the National Mall, just, just looking out on, you know, millions and, and not really seeing faces, just, oh yeah, there's that constituency and there's those people with those signs and you're just categories no now look at verse three what's the shepherd do because he knows us verse three he calls his own sheep by name he calls you by name you're you're not a number you're not a tribe you're not a following Mass of the redeemed, okay? He's personally acquainted with you, just like a shepherd in Palestine would assign a specific, unique name to every one of his sheep. And, check this out, because he knows us, we get to know him. Look at verse 14 again. I know my own, and my own know me. Both ways, (laughs) How does that happen? How does that happen? How how do we come to know Jesus? That's a good question. Even though we have yet to physically see Jesus with our eyes. Maybe you're exploring the Christian faith. You're thinking, people talk about knowing Jesus. And I'm just thinking, well, I'd love to, but like, when do I get to see him? How do I know somebody I've never seen? That's weird. Well, we know him, friend, through the sound of his voice. 
through the words he speaks and and the way he speaks them. Look at verse three. The sheep hear his voice. Verse four, the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. I was thinking about this. The illustration for, for you kids in the room, okay? Younger kids. Hey, have you ever been in a crowd of people, maybe even church after service gets out on a Sunday or the mall or something, and you know, you've, you've got everybody talking, laughing, people making noise, maybe at the soccer field, you went to the bathroom, and, and suddenly you realize in the midst of that just chaos, my mom is calling me. Mom's calling me. La, 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 la. hopefully not, right? <laughs> How did you know that? That's what I want you to think about. How did you know that? How'd you know that? With so much noise around you. Well, your brain recognized her voice. Out of all those other voices, her voice registered. A stranger could call you by name in a crowd. You know, and you might heard it. Somebody say my name, you know, but, but that wouldn't register the way it does if your mom calls your name, dad calls your name. And, and in the same way, friends, we, we come to know Jesus as he speaks to us through the pages of his word. Think about this, okay? Notice how the, the voice of God and the word of God are paralleled in Exodus 15, 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, where's that stuff? Bible. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. What's, what's Jesus saying and what is Moses saying in that context? The words of the Bible, this Bible, they're not idle words on a page. Okay, they, they are the voice of the great shepherd himself. Encouraging you and, and exhorting you and admonishing you and correcting you and warning you and promising you and instructing you. It's this word is how we come to know Jesus. And, and he implants the truth of his word in our hearts, speaks to us through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And according to verse 15, back in John 10 here, the combination of Jesus' knowledge of us and our knowledge of him, what's that enable us to experience? This is crazy. Verse 15. An intimacy of relationship with the son akin to the very intimacy of relationship he has with the father. Now, it's not the same, (laughs) but it's analogous. It's similar, similar kind. And it reminds us that the abundant life Jesus gives is nothing less than the life of the triune God. It's crazy. He knows us. Third, look at verse four. Jesus leads us. Makes him a good shepherd. He leads us. Verse four. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Many of you know this already, but when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to do really hard things. Yeah, nobody said amen to that, right? Because we don't, we don't necessarily like hard things, but isn't that true? 
He calls us to do hard things. Case in point, loving unselfishly is hard. Hate to break it to you. Putting sin to death is hard. But, but remember this, okay? Remember this, especially when what, what Jesus has told you to do, what he's leading us to do because he's already said it in his word, feels really, really hard. Remember this, okay, friend? At no point in that walk, fight, path of obedience, at no point are you ever, ever alone. You're never alone. The Savior himself is going before you on the path of obedience. That's what Jesus is saying here. He'll, he'll be with you. He'll help you. He'll, he'll guide you with his counsel, whether you're, you're walking into your child's bedroom to resolve a messy conflict or you're, you're walking out onto a stage with a bunch of less-than-friendly TV cameras to, to give a news update. He's with you. He leads you. You're never a sheep without a shepherd. When, when you need his guidance, you will not fail to hear his voice. Principally through his word, okay, but also through his spirit and godly counsel who help us take the word and apply it to our life. And Jesus says he will help us discern his voice from all others. This is one of the most remarkable blessings of the indwelling Holy Spirit whom Jesus gives us the good shepherd. You know what that spirit does? He helps us discern the sound of his voice. It's why true believers are drawn toward sound biblical teaching when they hear it. Even new believers. Because what? Because the spirit within them says, yes, yes, yes. his voice. And it's also why you don't need to be afraid of making big decisions, Christian. Because Jesus is going to lead you. But it's not just a a word of comfort in verse 4. He does lead us and that is comforting. There's, There's also a word of warning in here. Look back there. He goes before them and the sheep follow him. How easy is it to hear the Lord's voice speaking ever so clearly through his word and say, hmm, I'm not sure I want to do that. I don't really like that. Why am I supposed to do that again? Yeah, I can't think of a good reason. I'm not going to do that. What do we need to realize in those moments? That if there's a pattern in your life of not following the clear leading of the Lord Jesus, which again, where does that come from? From my subjective thoughts. No. (laughs) No, from the word of God. There's not a pattern in your life, Christian, of following the word of God, obeying the word of God when it costs you dearly. Because you know Jesus is better. (laughs) then you need to question, according to verse 4, are you actually one of his sheep? That's that's not a harsh thing for me to say. That's, That's simply what Jesus is saying. He leads us and his sheep must follow him. Fourth, 
What makes him a good shepherd? Jesus pursues us. He cares for us. He knows us. He leads us. He pursues us. If, if I'm not mistaken, and I have a pretty good vantage point up here, most of you look like Gentiles. I don't see too many folks that um, strike me as Jews in this particular room. And that makes verse 16 really good news for you. Look there. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, referring to the Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Aren't you grateful Jesus doesn't wait for us to come to him? We were saying that earlier in that song. Oh, great God. What's, what's the part that goes up? Then your spirit gave me life, opens up your word to me. He comes after you, friend. He takes initiative. He, he pursues sheep who are lost, sheep who are straying. He, he takes those, back, we can go back to Hosea, who are not his people and makes them his people. But think about this. How is verse 16 possible? If that's talking about the Gentiles, how is that possible when none of the Gospels have any record of Jesus doing significant ministry among the Gentiles? It's true. How's that possible? Well, Jesus did it through the personal witness of his disciples in Acts. And he continues to do that through what? Through the words of the gospel that we speak as the local church today. So when you're tempted to discouragement in the work of evangelism, the way I am, brothers and sisters, remember this, okay? Two things, encouragement in verse 16. When Jesus says, I must bring them also, he's emphasizing both the guaranteed victory of God's work and the continued personal role he has in drawing lost men and women to himself. That's good news. Why? Because it reminds us the battle isn't ours, it's the Lord's. Second, when Jesus says, they will listen to my voice, he's telling us both how he will draw people to himself through the proclamation of his word, power of his word, and that the spirit will use our feeble words to communicate his perfect word. And when that happens, men and women come to Christ, what do we get to experience as a church? The joy of being united as one people under one shepherd as the people of God. Notice there is not a white shepherd or a black shepherd or a conservative shepherd, or a liberal shepherd, or a wealthy shepherd, or a poor shepherd. There is one shepherd, friends, Jesus. And we're united in him, no matter how much the world around us tries to tell us that we should think of ourselves and see everybody around us in all of those tribal categories. And finally, we're flying here. <laughs> Final reason Jesus is a good shepherd is because he lays down his life for us. Look again at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you know Jesus actually says that? no less than four times 
in those verses. It's, it's that important, friend. He doesn't say those other things I mentioned four times. He says this four times. Why? Why? Because he wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Christian, that that is ultimately what makes him the good shepherd. He offers up his own life for the sheep in a definitive act of sacrificial love. So it makes him the good shepherd. He's not a thief who destroys the sheep or a hired hand who abandons the sheep in, in the face of our greatest, your greatest spiritual danger. What is that? What's your greatest spiritual danger? It's the wrath of God stored up on account of the sin that we've committed against the Holy One. That's your greatest spiritual danger. And in the face of that danger, Jesus doesn't run and Jesus doesn't hide. He gives us life by laying down his life. No no greater sacrifice has ever been demanded. And no greater sacrifice has ever been paid. Because this unselfishness that Jesus displayed dying on the cross in our place for our sins, it is the exact opposite of what sinful leaders do. What do sinful leaders do? They they use their position and power for their own sake. What does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for our sake. And so when, when you experience betrayal at the hands of men, and you're really hurting, friend, this is where you have to turn. This is where you have to look. You have to look to the cross and there see God's love for you forever proved. You have to do that. That that act was the culmination of an eternity of obedience as God the Son to the will of God the Father. And yet... Hear this, Jesus did not fulfill the father's plan of redemption because the father compelled him or because the father has greater authority than Jesus does. No, okay? The will of the son is the will of the father. The authority of the father is the authority of the son. There is one God. And yet Jesus exercises his divine authority by laying down his life in sacrificial death and taking it up in victorious resurrection for what? For the glory of the Father and the good of God's people. That's how we know he is the good shepherd. There may be many times in your life, friend, when you find yourself thinking, I just don't feel like Jesus cares for me. I just don't feel like he knows me He's leading me or he's pursuing me. Pastor, I feel none of those things. How do I know that where human leaders fail me, Jesus will not if I feel none of those things? Well, friend, the answer is something that doesn't change based on whether you feel it or not. What's that? the historical immovable fact that your great shepherd has died for you on the cross. That's not going anywhere. And so when you feel like he's a good shepherd and when you feel like he's not, what do we do in all those times? We fix our eyes on the gospel and remember, because he did that, I can know in every situation, even when I'm not feeling it, he is the good shepherd. A lot of people hearing all this thought Jesus was nuts. 
insane, demon-possessed. Other people struggled to dismiss this growing sense they had that everything he was saying was true. His words were divisive then and they're divisive today. And John 10 in particular forces us to make a choice, friends. How will you respond to Jesus? Will you come to him as the door, the only door to relationship with God? And having come to him, will you, will you trust him as your shepherd? Because nobody else can do for you what Jesus does. Where human leaders fail, Jesus does not. So I leave you with this charge. Stop trying to create life for yourself. And stop looking to other people to pick up the pieces when that first thing, creating life for yourself, ultimately doesn't work. It's never going to work. Look to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Say with King David in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Let's pray. God, we ask you for those two very things you've just told us to do. We ask you for help to come to you as the door that leads to life. And we ask you for faith to trust you as our good shepherd. I pray, Father, that every time this week, a human leader, human authority, fails us in some way, disappoints us in some way, that in that moment, our first response would not be to make heads roll in our hearts or online, but our first response would be to turn our eyes to you, Jesus, and say with a grateful heart, King Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, that where human leaders fail, you do not. We love you. Amen.